Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett, doing Truth Jihad Radio, 100% crowdfunded since about 2011, I think it is. Being crowdfunded means that I don't have to worry about what an employer, a government agency, or a large donor thinks about what I say. By giving me small donations, people are voting to allow me to continue to pursue totally independent analysis, interview whoever I want, and say whatever I think. If you think that's a good idea to have journalists and commentators and authors in that position, please vote to help it continue by subscribing to this show by way of Substack. You can do that through truthjihad.com. Click on the Substack link, or you could send a one-time donation or a recurring donation through PayPal to truthjihad.com at gmail.com. Uh, welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the live special edition. Uh, Kevin Barrett here talking with Richard Cook, the Challenger Disaster Whistleblower here in the first hour, moving on to talk with law professor Francis Boyle in the second half hour, and then Helen Byniski, a.k.a. Helen of Destroy, comes on to talk about her great new piece on the mass shooting of the Day Club. All three guests will be talking about neocons and their nefarious doings. So let's get going here with the first hour. Uh, Richard Cook, the uh, celebrated or at least briefly celebrated, not enough celebrated uh, Challenger disaster whistleblower, has been writing some great stuff uh, in his past uh, couple of years, publishing actually for longer than that at Veterans Today, among other places. He has a new short uh, comment posted at the Duran and He's asking, who are the neocons and what are they trying to do with respect to the Ukraine war? So let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Richard Cook. How are you? Hey, thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. I really like being on your show. Okay. Well, I, I like having you. It's really, it's an honor. And uh, so neocons, uh, that that's actually the key to a whole bunch of uh, horrific uh, foreign policy blunders, disasters, and uh, just vast, cruel genocides, practically, in the case of the 9-11 wars. I was just discussing this with Ron Unz uh, for a pre-record that I'll be releasing soon. Uh, the neocons are implicated in 9-11 in and anthrax. They're implicated in the COVID-apparent bio-attack on China and Iran, and they're implicated in the current war on Russia through Ukraine, so you're asking, who are the neocons and why do they keep doing these insane things? I think that's really the <laughs> the question of the century. Uh, what, yeah, I, I agree. And that's increasingly becoming my focus. I've got a couple new articles that uh, I'm working on uh, around that theme. And uh, the first one, uh, you and I kind of broached this subject. Uh, it's entitled, Will Ukraine Become the New Israel? Uh, so with your, okay, uh, what could we get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, I guess Zelensky said something about Ukraine becoming the new Israel and he implied that that meant having it become a draconian Spartan security state with checkpoints everywhere, hyper surveillance, and always, you know, having to catch those nasty Russian or Palestinian terrorists. Um, but maybe there was more than that too. I think that there may be a lot more to that. Uh, that line was almost treated by the uh, notorious mainstream media as a throwaway, uh, as just an exaggeration. But let's take let's take a look at that. 
you can call it a conspiracy theory. Of course, most might do that. But I have read in more than one place in the, in the last couple of years that the hidden agenda of the U.S. in Ukraine may actually be to create a new homeland for people from Israel who want to migrate there in order to get out of what increasingly is becoming a failed state heading for collapse. Uh, now, it's easy to ridicule this theory, but I think there may be something to it. Uh, I, I think we have to admit that Israel does look more and more like a failed state. And I don't say this as someone who is anti-Semitic or an opponent of Israel. Uh, I'm not anti-anyone. Uh, and in fact, I'm very sympathetic toward all of the innocent people in, around the world caught up in the violence of life in the world today. But let's be realistic. Look at Israel's present condition. Uh, it was originally created through the British Balfour Declaration uh, in what many people believe was making Palestine a future beachhead for the West uh, in the Middle East in a region very rich in mineral wealth. Uh, now, if you fast forward to uh, the uh, 21st century and the U.S.'s war on terror, which, was, which has failed miserably, this was a campaign that was obviously meant to run interference for Israel in its emergence as a leading regional power or maybe even a global power, or at least to prevent it from being eventually obliterated by enemies on every side. Uh, but the war on terror, let's be realistic, has been largely abandoned after more than 20 wasted years at the cost of trillions of dollars. And though the U.S., for example, crushed Iraq, that nation just passed legislation uh, for a complete ban up to the death penalty on any normalization of relations with Israel. Lebanon is an economic disaster, but it's largely controlled by Israel's arch enemy, Hezbollah. Iran remains independent and defiant, despite all of the U.S. threats and sanctions. And the U.S. tried to use terrorist cadres akin to al-Qaeda to destroy and take over Syria, but Russia has now emerged as a key player in the Middle East by sending forces to prevent that. Israel's failure to make peace with the Palestinians has made it an international pariah. Uh, the Israeli settlements in the West Bank are islands in a war zone. Its cities are armed camps, and its economy is so weak that it continues to depend on U.S. aid and donations from American Jewish groups just for sustenance. The people who are predicting a short-term existential crisis and collapse are not just Israel's external opponents, but many intelligent and influential Israelis themselves. And with both Turkey and Saudi Arabia now aligning more and more with Russia, the influence of America as Israel's protector is on the decline. So I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if part of the U.S. plan for taking Ukraine away from Russia, a plan that's being directed by the same neocons within the U.S. government who sponsored and carried out the war on terror, 
uh, it may be, in fact, a plan to capture Ukraine as a Jewish refuge from the failure of the Israel project. I want to just put that out there as a hypothesis. Nothing that I can prove or anyone else can. But we know that these are the same people that have spearheaded the attempt to take Ukraine, uh, to push Russia back. And, of course, the key figure in all this is uh, uh, Victoria Nuland with the State Department, who was there uh, as a sponsor of the 2014 coup uh, that began the trouble that we're now seeing manifesting in the Russian uh, special military operation. So it's a puzzle, and I'm just trying to put together the pieces of that puzzle. But Well, uh, if, if you're right about this, uh, Richard, there would be a real uh, historical echo here uh, if, if indeed the neocons are fighting Russia to move the Jewish state from occupied Palestine to Ukraine, then they would be actually going for the real um, Jewish or Khazarian homeland. That is, the, the, their real ethnic roots are indeed in what's now Ukraine, uh, not in occupied Palestine. And of course, the Kievan Rus, was, that was the beginning of the current Russian nation, which fought the Khazars, the Turkic tribe that converted to Judaism and became sort of the hub of, of the Eastern European Jewish people uh, and, and defeated them. And there has been that tension ever since. Uh, the Pale of Settlement was that same region of what's now Ukraine, where uh, Jews were heavily populated and the, the Russian czars uh, kind of kept them penned up there. And there was tension between the Christian uh, Rus and uh, the uh, Khazar-descended uh, Eastern European Jews. So if they're trying to take back Ukraine, in a sense, they're doing what they claimed they were doing with Palestine. I mean, they're, they're taking back their ancient homeland. I think there's a lot to that. And we have to look at the historical roots and be honest about it. Uh, and again, I, I have tremendous respect for Israel, for the Jewish people. Uh, I have uh, Jewish blood in my own family. Uh, but the Jewish people uh, are Europeans. Uh, they're Europeans uh, racially. Uh, they're Europeans by culture. And to expect them to uh, be the, the sole bastion of European culture on that tiny little uh, uh, rock and desert uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, it, it was too much to ask, I believe, in the beginning. It just has not worked. Uh, the, Euro, the, the Jewish people, including the ones who came from the Russian steppes, uh, as well as the ones who came out of Spain, made a tremendous contribution to European culture uh, over uh, recent centuries. And in fact, if you read somebody like Douglas Reed, you're probably familiar with his book, uh, The Controversy of Zion. Yes. Uh, truly one of the great books, I believe, of the 20th century. Uh, it's easy now to get a copy because finally it's in print. But he makes the point that up until the last years of the 19th century and the first years of the 20th century, almost all of the Jewish people living in Europe had the intent to stay in Europe and to assimilate, to continue to assimilate in the European cultures, as they've done so successfully in England, uh, as they've done in the United States. 
as in fact they did in Germany uh, until the Zionist ball got rolling in the early 20th century and gradually by a series of uh, very extreme measures, including the British Balfour Declaration, somehow this idea uh, got uh, rolling that the Jews were supposed to go live in Palestine. And in fact, they committed terrorist actions to establish their beachhead in Palestine, both against the British and, of course, against the Palestinians. And they have been in a constant state of warfare since 1948. And they've suffered from that. They have never been able to establish uh, a peaceful nation uh, that, uh, that utilizes the best qualities uh, of their intellect, of their spirituality, uh, of their tremendous accomplishments in science and medicine and, and religion. It, it's all run into this uh, stone wall uh, of uh, hatred that they're surrounded with and that they themselves manifest in turn when they are pushed to an extreme. So the idea of, uh, of Jewish people moving to Ukraine, to me, is not far-fetched. And I do believe that, that that may be something behind Zelensky's comment. He's Jewish. Poroshenko was Jewish. Uh, and now, with so many people vacating Ukraine uh, as refugees during this war, there may be plenty of room for Jewish people to settle there. And I would not be the least bit surprised if Putin and the Russians had some concept in mind similar to that, because one great accomplishment of Vladimir Putin has been to make the Jewish people welcome uh, in Russia uh, to the point where they are also assimilating into Russia as good citizens of the Russian Federation. So again, Kevin, these are all just pieces of a puzzle out there that I've tried to put together, uh, which I think is, uh, uh, I'm a former federal analyst, and we're supposed to make assessments. And yeah, we don't I think have that's to, a pretty good assessment, actually. That's my assessment. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just Zelensky himself, who's Jewish, but also his owner, the oligarch uh, Kolomoisky, who created right, yeah. right by hiring him as a, uh, a two-bit actor to turn into yeah. a, a famous comedian playing the role of a comedian who somehow becomes president. And that was how they right. groomed him to become a comedian who somehow becomes president. And Kolomoisky was behind the whole thing. So uh, certainly there is a, an, you know, an ethnic Jewish overrepresentation in the key actors in this Ukraine war. No question about that. Um, on the other hand, if they really want to move the Jewish state from Palestine to Ukraine, that strikes me as kind of getting out of the fire, the, the frying pan into the fire. You know, that's they're going from one war zone to another and having Russia as your enemy might be just as bad as having the Arab and Muslim worlds as your enemy. And indeed, uh, they're laying waste to Ukraine now. Uh, that doesn't look like a good thing to do if that's where you're planning to move. So uh, that does it strikes me as, as a kind of a dubious plan if that's what they're actually planning. But on the other hand, these neocons have shown that they're quite capable of making extremely dubious plans. They seem to think that 9-11 was going to solve all their problems, and it actually right. just made them worse in the medium run. And they seem to think that hitting China and Iran with COVID-19 would be a, a brilliant geostrategic move. And then that boomeranged. That didn't work out so well. And so now... Uh, making war on Russia through Ukraine for whatever purpose 
and pushing Russia and China together and making Russia really annoyed with the people behind this uh, it doesn't strike me as a pretty is a brilliant strategic move. I mean, these neocons just, are not stupid. So what are they thinking? Yeah, uh, just sticking to Ukraine for now. Uh, it looks to me as though the original plan uh, after the 2014 uh, U.S. sponsored coup uh, again, run by the neocons uh, and being a fulfillment of uh, a 30-year effort ever since the breakup of the Soviet Union to get control of Ukraine uh, uh, had as its intention to drive the Russian-speaking population out of eastern and southern Ukraine uh, and to engender a large migration of those Russian-speaking people uh, out of the Donbass, uh, in particular, uh, into Russia. Uh, and I think that's what the uh, uh, Ukrainian army was poised to do, because uh, it's been made pretty clear that they were preparing an attack on the Donbass to take place in March of 2022, until Putin surprised so many people by preempting them and moving into Ukraine first. But I think the intent had been to clear the Russian speakers out of Ukraine, uh, including, if necessary, genocide. And the genocide had already begun uh, in 2014 with the bombardment of the Donbass. So they were already doing it. Uh, but Putin has made it clear. I, I use the word Putin. We mean, we mean Russia, of course, and the leadership of Russia, that they are going to hold on to eastern and southern Ukraine. That region may very well become a part of the Russian Federation or in the interim, three or four uh, uh, separate uh, Russian speaking republics. And the work on that has already begun. But I do believe myself that Russia intends to uh, establish a, a, some kind of a peaceful settlement with Ukraine that probably, from all I'm seeing, will leave what they're calling a rump Ukraine uh, in the center and the West uh, to become a neutral state, uh, a non-militarized state, one that is not part of NATO, uh, in essence, a Russian protectorate. If that works, uh, I, my speculation is that Putin would not be opposed to uh, settlers coming in from Israel uh, to begin the population of that part of Ukraine. Of course, it's not going to be a big announcement. You know, one day uh, Tel Aviv is going to move to Kiev. Things don't happen that way. It would be much more gradual. But I think there's a possibility there. I, I, I think Russia would allow that and that it would probably even be in Russia's interest to do something like that. But we'll just wait and see. If I were to talk to President Putin, I, I would suggest that. So, so, so I'm not you're, going to do that. You're saying there, there are kind of uh, two different uh, settle, uh, two, two different scenarios for Jewish settlement in Ukraine. The first one was the one the neocons wanted, which was to ethnically cleanse the Russians from eastern and southern Ukraine. And of course, right. they did to some extent. Uh, I think a million they and did. a half Russian-speaking Ukrainians uh, fled into Russia during that bombardment Correct. from 2014 up until this year. And so Correct. that plan may have fallen through now with the Russian military success. So plan B would be for the uh, Israeli Jews 
to go to Rump, Ukraine, that is the western uh, remnant of Ukraine after the country has been partitioned, basically. Yes, that's what I'm suggesting. And Ukraine, even a glance at the map, even, even for Americans who don't know where Ukraine is, if they find it on the map, they will see how big it is. Uh, it's, it's a vast region, uh, a huge amount of uh, farmland, of uh, what they call the Russian steppe. Uh, it's just, and it's already been called an empty space, particularly with millions of Ukrainians having already moved west to uh, get jobs in the European Union and then millions more following out of Ukraine uh, during this war. So, yeah, I, I think that's a possibility that should be entertained by the parties to the conflict, and it may already be uh, in the back of the minds of some people. And, and we know, for instance, that uh, Zelensky was ready to sit down with Russia and has even begun to do so uh, in Istanbul in April and talk about peace. Uh, they, he was prevented from doing so by Boris Johnson, the, the principal point man for the Western Alliance, and then the U.S. coming in with all of their heavy-duty weapons that they advertised as uh, what well, you know the factor that would allow the Ukrainians to fight to the last man. Uh, it was the West that prevented a settlement taking place that very well may have included some kind of provision for the free migration of peoples in and out of Ukraine uh, during the, uh, the period after the war was settled. Uh, it was the, the West, it was the U.S. and Britain and NATO that prevented that from happening. And uh, there's an awful lot of pressure building up now to simply allow uh, Ukraine and Russia to sit down at the negotiating table and come to a sensible settlement. And I do think that's possible. And these kind of migrations of peoples may be part of that. That's very interesting. Well, if your guess is correct, then there's a tremendous historical irony here, once again, highlighting the symmetry between uh, Nazism and Zionism, because Nazism, of course, may or may not have originally harbored genocidal intentions towards Jewish people and, and gypsies and so on, but it clearly did harbor genocidal intentions towards Russians, uh, particularly yeah. Russians in the area that's what's that's now Ukraine. In Mein right. Kampf, Hitler made it absolutely clear that it was a prime goal of Germany under him or his future Hitler in Germany to take over some Lebensraum in, in that area and to ethnically cleanse the Slavic and Russian population and settle it with Germans. And so if you're right today, the Zionists are planning or have been planning something very similar. They want Lebensraum. And they want to get it in Ukraine and they want to ethnically cleanse the population there so they can have it. So this once again uh, would tell us that, that you know, Zionism and Nazism were just two sides of the same proverbial coin. Well, the, the ethnic cleansing of Russians out of Ukraine, I think we can be quite certain now is not going to happen. So to that extent, the neocon project has failed and has failed miserably. Uh, just as their war on terror failed in establishing American slash Israeli hegemony in the Middle East. Uh, both of their plans have failed. But what can happen, I believe, and I also think what must happen, is there has to be a settlement 
between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe runs to the Urals. It includes Russia. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners have ever read Putin's autobiography. Uh, I, I recently did that. Uh, it's a fascinating read. It starts from boyhood and goes up to when he became president of Russia in 2000 and 2001. But he's a European man, and he is the leader of a European culture. And that culture was fractured by the world wars. And the only way I can see for peace in the world to come about is by the uniting of Europe along the lines of its ancient culture. The U.S. doesn't want that. Uh, and to prevent that, the U.S., I think, is in danger of, of, of falling off a cliff and becoming a full-blown terrorist state. Uh, I hate to say that about my own country, but I, I think it's a fact. But uh, I think it's going to be the Europeans themselves, with Putin a participant, who are going to come together and knit Europe together along some line uh, uh, of the kinds of settlements that we're talking about, where all of the peoples of Europe, and again, I consider the Jewish people who live in Israel, a European people, they're all go have to find uh, some kind of a harmony and a homeland within the uh, European continent uh, for there to be peace in the world. Oh, that's a very interesting analysis. Uh, so uh, I, I think we're just about at the end of our half hour. And looking at my studio board, it looks like we might have Professor Francis Boyle already on the line. Let's check. Francis, are you there? Uh, I am here, Kevin. Sure. Okay. Yes, we do have Francis Boyle. So that means it's time to say goodbye to Richard Cook. Thank you so much, Richard. That was a, a very provocative uh, analysis. And you might very well be on to something. And I guess we'll, we'll find out as time goes by. And we'll keep bringing you back uh, as developments continue. So thank you again. Well, thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate being with you. Okay, take care. Good night. That was Richard Cook, the whistleblower who exposed the O-rings behind the Challenger disaster. He's an analyst and a quite a good one. It's too bad the government doesn't hire and employ uh, people like him more often. Uh, okay, we have Fra Francis Boyle, University of Illinois international law professor, somebody I quote quite regularly about various subjects, including the genocide being perpetrated against Palestine, and he's out with a brand new book called Resisting Medical Tyranny, Why the COVID-19 Mandates Are Criminal. And uh, that's uh, it's, a, it's a, a strong title. And he makes strong statements saying that these COVID vaccines violate the Nuremberg Code, it's the same code that was used to prosecute, convict and even execute the Nazi doctors at Nuremberg. This is a crime against humanity. Um, well, uh, Professor Boyle, uh, thank you for uh, speaking truth to power in such an uncompromising way. It's great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on, uh, Kevin, my best to your listening audience. So your, your new book uh, sounds like it's going to be filling in some of the details that a whole lot of people in the COVID freedom movement will be interested in. You know, we've heard over and over that there is something uh, dubious about the legality of these COVID control measures. And it looks like you've actually mounted a rigorous argument from an international law perspective. So maybe you could tell us more about that. Well, uh, 
Kevin, first, it's it's very clear if you read the uh, Nuremberg uh, medical doctor's case where the United States government uh, prosecuted uh, Nazi uh, doctors and uh, scientists for some of the reprehensible uh, practices they engaged in. Uh, and out of that came the Nuremberg Code on Medical uh, Experimentation, which is certainly uh, customary international criminal law today. And if you look at these, uh, all these uh, Frankenshots, every one of them, they all violate the uh, Nuremberg Code on Medical Experimentation. These are uh, Nuremberg crimes. They're, they're Nazi crimes that we are looking at. In addition, as for the uh, second point you made, uh, if you have a look at the uh, Nuremberg Charter of uh, 1945, and this was uh, President Franklin uh, Roosevelt's idea that the uh, major Nazi uh, leaders should get a trial and not just be uh, summarily uh, shot, uh, there was put in there what was called crimes against humanity. And let me uh, read to you directly out of the Nuremberg Charter of 1945, uh, Article 6, and the definition of crimes against humanity. And here it is, uh, Section C, crimes against humanity, namely murder, extermination, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population murder, extermination, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population. And uh, the United States government put that provision in there, crimes against humanity, uh, to deal with the uh, uh, persecution of the uh, German Jewish citizens by their own government, the, the German Nazi uh, government. That's why it was put in there, because... Technically, that did not qualify as a war crime, the way you treated your own citizens, which was another provision of the Nuremberg Charter. So they put that in there. And clearly, uh, that's what's going on here, that uh, the government's uh, uh, imposing these frankenshots, these uh, mandates, uh, lying to the people, uh, are treating their own citizens the way the uh, German Nazi government keep, uh, 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 treated uh, they're German Jewish uh, uh, citizens. Later, they, they stripped them of citizenship, but it was the same thing. And then also, uh, finally, if you uh, read the uh, current Rome statute for the International uh, Criminal Court, uh, Article 7, Crimes Against Humanity, uh means any of the following acts was committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population with knowledge of the attack. Murder, extermination, right out of the uh, Nuremberg Charter, uh, torture, and finally, uh, other inhumane acts of a similar character intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or to mental or physical health. So uh, certainly uh, I point all this out uh, in, in my book. Uh, I wrote the book for common, ordinary, every people, everyday people to read. There's not a lot of uh, legal jumbo in there. 
it's written in plain English, but the uh, legal arguments you need to fight back uh, against these uh, mandates, the COVID frankenshots, uh, the U.S. Uh, health uh, establishment, uh, Fauci, all the rest of these people, it, it's all in my uh, book. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, to give uh, you know, regular people uh, ammunition to, uh, to fight back uh, against this uh, medical tyranny and also this uh, scientific tyranny that we've been seeing since um, January of uh, 2020. Well, if there were somebody trying to defend the perpetrators of these crimes against humanity in a courtroom, such uh, a devil's advocate might say that whereas the Nazi doctors were dehumanizing and harming the people they experimented on quite regularly, that is, they were doing things to those people that were designed to bring knowledge through these experiments, but they were not designed to help the people in any way. Usually they were harming the people, and that's why there was so much horror around this. Uh, these stories of the Nazi doctors, whereas these COVID experiments are supposedly being used to help people. And the claim would be that there was a global public health emergency that to date uh, at least 15 million, perhaps 20 million people worldwide have died from COVID. In the U.S., it's over a million people. Uh, latest estimate is 1.3 million total. Uh, and that in, in this uh, kind of emergency, uh, this using these experimental injections with good intentions of trying to save lives, uh, however it may actually turn out, uh, isn't the same thing as what the Nazi doctors were accused of. So I can imagine that that's one of the arguments that you will be hearing, and, and I wondered how you would respond. Yeah, uh, well, Kevin, as you know, if you just hit the internet, it's now come out the uh, massive fraud and lies and propaganda uh, that have been uh, perpetrated uh, by the uh, drug companies that have uh, put together uh, these uh, uh, Frankenshots. And that, you know, Freedom of Information Act request just came out. Uh, Judicial Watch has it on there. Uh, I think uh, Naomi Wolf uh, has something out there on this. Uh, and it's clear that uh, everyone involved in this uh, knew that they were uh, inflicting uh, uh, grievous bodily harm on uh, human beings with these untested, unproven uh, Frankenshots that clearly violated the Nuremberg Code on Medical Experimentation. And by the way, with respect to uh, you know, criminal intent, they knew all about the Nuremberg Code on Medical Experimentation as well as I did because they're uh, doctors and scientists. So of course they knew all about it. So uh, I don't think that you know, obviously you would make the uh, argument to a jury, but under the current circumstances, uh, I, I think a jury would find them guilty of crimes against humanity and outright murder. Uh, uh, I used to teach, Kevin, I was originally hired here to teach uh, uh, criminal law, which I taught for six or seven years before I moved over to teach uh, international uh, human rights law, although I still do criminal cases both prosecution and defense as matters of uh, principle, and uh, uh, to have uh, the charge of murder. And indeed, I outline that at much length in my book, which you can read. Uh, one of the requirements is, is malice aforethought. 
And clearly, uh, the intention to inflict grievous bodily harm on people, the knowledge that you're doing that, uh, can can constitute malice of forethought uh, necessary to uh, establish murder. Likewise, another uh, variant of malice of forethought is extreme uh, recklessness. And it's clear, again, if you read through uh, all the documentation that has come out, that the people involved in these uh, COVID frankenshots have engaged in uh, extreme recklessness uh, against human beings. So I think uh, a case for murder uh, uh, can be made. Certainly, I think, uh, as I've argued in my book, uh, that state and local prosecutors can get indictments uh, for murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And really, all they need at that level is probable cause to get an indictment. And, you know, there's more than probable cause here. Um, And then, obviously, it would be uh, up to a jury to find these people uh, guilty. But I think they can be found found guilty. I think the facts are there. So they can say whatever they want. But uh, I don't think a jury is going to buy it, especially now that you look at, uh, you know, the, the death and injuries of uh, people who have either taken the Frankenshots or been forced to take them, uh, uh, you know, the, the numbers are, are astronomical and they're only going up. Well, there's one place where there clearly is a parallel with uh, the Nazi philosophy, which is, as I said, that the these people defending themselves in court against you, and I hope it reaches that point, would claim that there was this huge global public health emergency and something had to be done. It was worth taking a chance. And we were, you know, we had good intentions, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that actually, that that argument uh, that, in fact, if they knew that they were going to be harming people and even killing people with their vaccines, their claim that they would be saving a lot more people than they were harming and killing uh, and that that would then be okay due to the state of emergency. That actually echoes a key tenet of Nazi philosophy, which is, of course, the state of exception or the state of emergency that Carl Schmitt said is the key to being a, a, a very good politician, that is, to practicing politics the way it's supposed to be practiced. Because Schmitt said that politics is the science of enmity, and to carry out this science properly and unite people in hatred of an internal or external enemy, the thing you have to do is dissolve parliamentary rule and democracy by declaring a state of emergency and having this exceptional state that allows the sovereign to do whatever he or she wants. And that seems to be essentially what this defense would actually boil down to. They would have to claim that, yeah, we're sort of guilty as charged, but we kind of sort of had to do it because of this terrible, terrible emergency. And there they would be uh, echoing the number one Nazi philosopher, Carl Schmitt, as well as his Straussian uh, followers. So, yeah, I, I, I see the, the Nazi comparison. I mean, these days there's so many uh, Nazi uh, comparisons being thrown around with regard to Ukraine and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And they say the first person to invoke Hitler loses the argument. But in this case, I think that there are some interesting uh, parallels. Well, uh, so let me uh, me say, Kevin, I do agree with you that uh, on that uh, point, you know, Carl Schmitt was uh, a Nazi, diehard Nazi uh, law professor, and he justified uh, every uh, hideous atrocity Hitler and the Nazis inflicted on everyone, including the Jews. So, uh, yes, I think you would just uh, a prosecutor would uh, point that out uh, to the jury. You know, they 
if you read the uh, proceedings of the uh, uh, Nuremberg uh, Tribunal, yes, the lawyers for the Nazis uh, uh, made arguments and, uh, you know, they were entitled to make their arguments and they made them. And uh, it did not really uh, uh, convince the the judges. Uh, There were uh, some elements that uh, uh, did uh, were taken into account by the judges. But in the grand scheme of things, most of them were found guilty and several of them were executed. So I well, think what, it would play out the same way here, uh, Kevin. What, what do you think about those who argue that uh, much of what passes for legal procedure disguises these power relations that are actually deciding things? That is, it, it isn't any kind of rationality under the rule of law that uh, determines whether or not the Nazi war criminals get convicted as opposed to the, uh, the, the good guy war criminals who nuked uh, Japan and firebombed Tokyo and Germ- Dresden and other German cities and committed atrocities. They're arguably every bit as bad as those the Nazis committed, but because of the issue of who won the war, the people in power who were able to impose their victor's justice uh, did so. And that argument would then go on to point out that to, in today's world, the big pharma people, the WHO people and these uh, Pfizer and Moderna executives and the, all of these people who are responsible for putting out the vaccines and, and the other COVID control measures are essentially still in power and likely to remain there for the foreseeable future. And that therefore the chances of actually convicting them are very slim, whereas the chances of miscarriages of justice convicting people on the other side are much greater, in fact. And do you think that that critique of law has any validity? And uh, how should we act in order to try to help justice prevail? Well, of course, uh, Mr. Justice Jackson, in his uh, opening statement there at Nuremberg, said that uh, we are creating uh, one standard of behavior here uh, for them and ourselves. So I would uh, certainly argue that to uh, any jury. Uh, As for going forward, in my uh, book, I've outlined a strategy where common, ordinary, everyday citizens can go to their uh, state's attorney, district attorney, attorney general, and request that they convene a uh, grand jury uh, to prosecute these people Uh, for murder, to get an indictment uh, for murder uh, under the uh, uh, Anglo-American common law that applies in most states of the Union except uh, Louisiana. I've been involved down there in Louisiana, too. Uh, And I outlined the case and uh, how how, uh, 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 state or local uh, prosecutors uh, can get these indictments and and the legal arguments. As a matter of fact, I spent... uh, 45 minutes with the uh, state's attorney, uh, sorry, the attorney general of Louisiana uh, going through uh, all of these arguments step by step. He had no problem with uh, any of the uh, legal arguments. And I spent uh, 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 35 minutes with the uh, uh, deputy attorney general of uh, South Carolina going through all these uh, legal arguments. He had no problem with, with the legal arguments either. So it's all in my book. So obviously the United States federal government is worthless. They're, they're all in the pocket 
uh, of uh, uh, the bio warriors, the CIA, the Department of War, uh, the CDC, uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. But your state and local uh, district attorney, state's attorney, attorney general, uh, you elect these people, uh, you pay for their salaries, you can diselect them at the uh, next uh, election if you want to. And uh, the at a state and local basis, they feel uh, far more accountable uh, to the people who elected them than these uh, uh, federal officials who are all in cahoots, as we see uh, with the uh, medical tyrants, the scientific tyrants, uh, the COVID uh, 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 Frankenshot mandates, uh, and these uh, uh, rampant uh, crimes against humanity. So my book uh, uh, sets forth the strategy to simply avoid the entire federal system and fight back at a state and local basis that we, the citizens of those jurisdictions, control. That sounds like a, a good strategy. And uh, I've, I have heard from other lawyers, people like uh, William Pepper and, and many, you know, the law, a long list of lawyers who've taken up these kinds of causes that uh, figuring out which venue and at which level you're going to be fighting is, is crucial. And I think that makes a lot of sense, what you just said. So uh, I, I have a couple more questions. First, um, I think one of the scandalous aspects of the, the whole uh, COVID fiasco is the likelihood that it was, in fact, a deliberate biological attack, most likely by elements of the uh, Trump administration, neocons like Pompeo, uh, and a very few people on a need-to-know basis would have apparently attacked uh, Wuhan and Qom Iran with COVID-19. And this uh, hypothesis is uh, fleshed out, and uh, I think there's a very persuasive case for it. Um, it's probably Ron Unz has done the best work on this, and he has an ebook called Our, Our Coronavirus Catastrophe as Biowarfare Blowback, and it just came out in paperback. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas about legally how one would go about trying to get that evidence into a court, given that it's uh, extremely uh, persuasive. I think most people who look at it, uh, I've heard very few uh, who have uh, summarily rejected it, and most are just really afraid to entertain it because it's too frightening. Uh, is, is there any legal strategy that could take on the biowar establishment by making that case that this actually was a deliberate attack? Well, I've looked, I haven't read that uh, book. I guess it just came out. But in my book, uh, I uh, argue that COVID-19 is an offensive biological warfare weapon uh, with gain-of-function properties uh, that was uh, researched, developed, tested, manufactured at uh, the University of North Carolina uh, Biosafety Level Lab 3 uh, and the Wuhan uh, BSL-4. And involved in the development of uh, this uh, uh, offensive biological warfare weapon uh, was uh, uh, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, think about that now, Kevin. These mm -hmm. are the exact same people who are approving the COVID-19 Frankenshots in violation of the Nuremberg Code on Medical Experimentation and the Nuremberg Charter. They helped develop COVID-19 as an offensive biological warfare weapon. Uh, likewise, involved was the uh, 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 someone from the Harvard Medical School. Well, 
Uh, the current director of the CDC, Walensky, is from the Harvard Medical School. Uh, Harvard was a sponsoring institution of the uh, Wuhan uh, BSL-4. Harvard was over there uh, involved in this. Uh, and also uh, Fort Detrick. Fort Detrick was working at the UNC BSL-3 with the Bat Queen from the Wuhan uh, BSL-4 to produce the offensive biological warfare weapon uh, known as uh, COVID-19. COVID uh, it's all, and by the way, this was uh, uh, funded by Tony Fauci, uh, the director of NIAID, and also uh, Francis Collins, the uh, director of the National Institutes of Health. I have it all here, the documentation on that. So uh, I think it's a bit broader uh, than uh, what what you are saying. Yeah, it's uh, we, we can get into that maybe some other time. I'll, I'll send you a link to the ebook, which you can read free online. Um, but I, I think taking this to court is a great idea, especially given that there's been so much grassroots pushback, particularly in certain kinds of jurisdictions in certain states, that you might uh, have some success. And uh, so you mentioned you talked with the uh, people in Louisiana, and uh, are, are there uh, actual uh, prosecutors who are planning to file charges that you know of or actual uh, legal cases that are being filed uh, at this point? Well, the Attorney General of Louisiana and the Deputy Attorney General of South Carolina said they would consider seriously what I had to say. Uh, they didn't promise uh, prosecutions. They said they were going to have their own uh, people uh, look into it. Uh, so fine, we'll have to see what happens. I also hear that the uh, the, the uh, there was a meeting of Republican attorney generals, uh, and they're considering it too. And I do have uh, people out there uh, at a grassroots level uh, working to get uh, state, local uh, uh, prosecutors, attorney generals uh, to convene grand juries. And I am working with lawyers on this. Uh, Obviously, it will take some time, and it's going to take uh, uh, organization by citizens. This is, uh, as I point out in my book, this is a grassroots uh, campaign. The only progressive change we've ever seen in this country has been uh, grassroots campaigns, going back to you know, civil rights for uh, African Americans. It has to come from the people. I can't do it by myself, uh, but I have written a book to provide all the uh, legal arguments for uh, uh, common, ordinary, everyday citizens uh, to get involved uh, and, and take this book to your state's attorney or district attorney or attorney general and say, you know, we, we want you to convene these grand juries. And uh, uh, Professor Boyle here is willing to talk with you uh, about it and, and to go through the whole strategy with you. Well, it sounds like a plan. Uh, which estimate for the number of American deaths from the vaccines would you go with, given that they range from the defenders of the vaccines would say, well, you haven't proven that a single person has ever been killed by a vaccine, uh, to some saying, well, no, we have, we can show that the, this small number definitely was killed. And then the estimates range up to the 10,000s as a conservative estimate to into the 100,000s and as high as a quarter million Americans or more uh, being killed by the vaccines. I think those high estimates are probably unlikely because of the overall excess death count not really reflecting them. But 
Uh, I'm just wondering who you think is putting out the most credible case on the number of deaths that we've experienced. Well, uh, Kevin, let me speak here from my uh, prior experience. Uh, I helped defend uh, Captain Dr. Yolanda Hewitt-Vaughn during Gulf War One, who refused to give out the experimental biological warfare vaccines for anthrax and botulin in violation of the Nuremberg Code on medical experimentation. Uh, she was facing uh, five years for desertion. Of course, she did not uh, desert. You can read all about that in my book, uh, Biowarfare and Terrorism, and also her case in particular in my book, uh, uh, Destroying World Order. Now, uh, what happened there, uh, Kevin, and this is the last instance we have any figures on, on uh, uh, biological warfare uh, frankenshots. Out of 500,000 U.S. troops inoculated, they murdered about 11,000 U.S. troops, and they disabled 100,000, okay? Those are the figures. Now, I'm, uh, and those were healthy young men and women in our armed forces. And by the way, those are lowball figures because I still hear from veterans today uh, left over from Gulf War One, uh, uh, suffering from the Gulf War sickness, which which is what it's called. Um, so I believe that's that's a floor and not a ceiling of what we're going to be seeing here. Uh, and these are, uh, you know, the Gulf War Frankenshots on steroids. Uh, these uh, uh, uh RNA, uh, uh, so-called vaccines, frankenshots, and, and the others. Basically, what they do is they all put into you cells from COVID-19, which is an offensive biological warfare weapon with gain-of-function properties. It has HIV that is DNA genetically engineered right into that, and it has been nanotechnologized. So that is what you are uh, injecting in here if you take any of these uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, frankenshots. So I'm afraid that, you know, within, within the next year, we are going to be seeing a um, humanitarian catastrophe. Okay. Well, I, I hope you're wrong, but I'm certainly not convinced that you are. And I am convinced that you're right about a great many of these things, including the uh, uh, general uh, danger of these vaccines, the fact that they, they have largely failed and uh, the people behind them probably should be prosecuted for crimes against humanity. Well, thank you so much, Francis Boyle. I appreciate your excellent work on this and many other issues. Uh, keep it up. And uh, good luck with the book. I urge people to check that out. Resisting Medical Tyranny, Why the COVID-19 Mandates Are Criminal, available now on Amazon. You can find the link by way of my radio blog. Go to truthjihad.com, click on the radio link, and you'll get there. So, again, thank you, uh, Francis. Take care. And God bless. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Okay. Bye-bye. That's international law professor Francis Boyle. I'm Kevin Barrett of truthjihad.com. Back in the next hour with Helen Bynisky otherwise known as Helen of Destroy, to talk about, are you enjoying your membership in the mass shooting of the day club?